0: Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest films about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel to talk for love of the game, A leak of their own, bring it on, and bend it like Beckham. So, this episode is for love of the game. Sports! We're talking about sports. Sports. Quite ironically, because. <laughs> Uh neither of us have any interest in sports or any history in sports or <laughs> any athletic ability. Me,
1: I was a kinder kicker. Let's wow. not forget. Yeah, <laughs> so no, I have no relationship to sports. Um well that's not true. We both went to the University of Michigan and there was sports culture there that we couldn't avoid, but I don't think that meant that we became interested in sports. I just
0: I think I did my best to avoid it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so so why are we why are we talking about sports today?
0: I think there is something so inherently feminist about women in sports.
1: You know, normally in stories, there's different dramatic tactics to get what you want, whether it's your wit or your sexuality, which is very common in female-driven stories directed by men. It's like the only way women can get what they want is by using their sexuality. And what I think is really cool about these movies is that for the most part, they're using their bodies to get what they want. They're using their muscles. They're using like their blood and their sweat. They're, they're really sort of committing their bodies in a non-sexual way to getting what they want. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool.
0: There's one shot in Bendit Like Beckham that gets to the point of that mm-hmm. so quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just, it's like a close-up slow-mo shot of one of the soccer players just wiping this smear of blood off of her leg. I love that moment. And then
1: continuing playing. <laughs> I love that shot.
0: All three of these movies... I think do a
1: really good job in portraying the athleticism of the women. Their bodies are celebrated for what they are capable of. Yeah. And it's the same way that I feel when I watch like musicals or dance mm-hmm. and I see people just like leaping in the air. And they don't even feel like people They feel like these sort of gods Who can do things that normal people can't do
0: I watched like two years ago When the Summer Olympics were happening Oh yeah,
1: you were obsessed with that I caught women's beach volleyball Yes, you were obsessed with volleyball
0: I've never seen anything like it I've never seen like human bodies That look like that They're all like six feet tall (laughs) Completely made up of muscles They look like the characters from avatar. Ah. They they look like those blue people, That's but amazing. like humans. <laughs> it's insane what like admiring what the human body is capable of.
1: Yes. Exactly And I think why these three films are really interesting It explores women who know that they are capable of that And wanting to pursue that But through some, some issues of either being women Or just some sort of cultural specificity They are being withheld For being able to showcase just how athletic they are Or how athletic they are capable of being
0: In various ways Yeah
1: whether it's racial or economic or just cultural just the time period right
0: all three of these movies delve into the subject of racism in sports yeah
1: I think you and I were both preparing for this episode in one way that we were gonna be talking about but like, this justice, was gonna be a th-
0: really fun episode yeah like, about,
1: about <laughs> athleticism and about you know working really hard for you know as a team I think we were gonna we were gonna focus on the idea of teamwork and while it is about teamwork I think you and I were both very pleasantly surprised by how actually all three of these films are about tribalism and are about what when you're a part of a team, you're a part of a community and what happens inherently with communities is that people are excluded from communities. So really I feel like a lot of these films are about the consequences of excluding others from your community. Right. They discuss people wanting to be a part of a tribe that for one reason or another, it is very, very difficult for them to become a part of. And that is so far beyond athleticism. That's so far beyond cheerleading or whatever it is. That's so universal and human. And I was really like, yeah, I was really excited about the prospect of talking about that with you.
0: I agree. Let's start this conversation with A League of Their Own. Fabulous. It's a classic. Yeah. It is the oldest of the three movies. It came out in 1992, directed by Penny Marshall, screenplay by Lowell Gams and Babaloo. Mandel. Babaloo. <laughs> based on a story by two women, Kim Wilson and Kelly Kandel. And it stars Gina Davis and Lori Petty as the two sisters, Dottie and Kit, and Tom Hanks as
1: Jimmy Dugan. Okay, so to give a quick summary, A League of Their Own takes place in the midst of World War II, and it follows two sisters who are recruited to play baseball for a new professional women's baseball league. Because all the men who have played baseball are off at war. And so these two sisters, at first they're on the same team. And the older sister, Dottie, who sort of can do no wrong, she struggles back and forth between wanting to be a wife and stay at home with a family. And the fact that she's the best player in the league. Meanwhile, her sister Kit tries to really earn her place in the team in the shadow of her sister, who she's been jealous of her whole life and sort of all of her insecurities are based around. Eventually, because of this competition, it gets so big on the team that Kit is traded to another team and they both face off in the World Series and Kit's team ends up winning. And then the film jumps forward 40 years to an epilogue where you see all of these women from the League being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame.
0: You love this
1: movie. I do. I love it from my childhood years of having watched it a million times with my mom. And I really appreciated being able to go back to it now as an adult and being able to articulate in a more eloquent way why I loved it then and I love it now. But then also being able to appreciate flaws that I was... Not aware of as Great. A kid.
0: I think that's an exciting conversation for me. Yeah, for sure. I think that movies have come such a long way totally in such a short period of time. Like you look at A League of Their Own, which came out in 1992, mm-hmm. to Bend It Like Beckham, that came out in 2002, ten years later. Yeah, and the transformation of movie making just in those in that ten year period. Yeah, is
1: amazing. I think the main difference, though, or one of the one of the biggest things to acknowledge the distinction between those two movies. A League of Their Own was made in the 90s, which was, you know, obviously three decades less progressive than we are now. It was a film made in the 90s about the 40s. Mm -hmm. So there's already two components of... (laughs) Of sort of archaic thought that are explored in this movie. There's '90s thought and there's '40s thought. Whereas, Bendit like Beckham was filmed in the 2000s about the 2000s, right. so of course it's going to feel more modern.
0: What do you love about this movie?
1: I think first and foremost, I love the idea that these women were world class athletes. They were incredible at the sport, whether the league existed or not. Like they give very little exposition about where these women trained and right. how they got good at baseball. You see, you see the two sisters playing in like their little. Community, but basically these women were proper, pro- proper athletes, regardless of whether or not there was a professional league. Then, when they get the opportunity to show how good they are, it's it's this you know phenomenon, and I think that's such an incredible metaphor for feminism that like we're fierce bitches, whether you acknowledge it or not, and so <laughs> you might as well acknowledge it, and that's why that scene at the end, that epilogue, where all the old women are being celebrated at the Hall of Fame, is so moving to me because an institution. I mean, this goes back to why. We need men in this conversation. This giant institution of, you know, male prowess, the Baseball Hall of Fame, acknowledged the capabilities and power of these women. So that, that scene gets me every time when he cuts the ribbon and they all go in. But in the same breath, you sort of have to acknowledge that these women who are being appreciated and celebrated for their athletic prowess, for all those women, there are so many women that the film completely does not acknowledge. Right. There are so many women of color at that time that the film gives absolutely no acknowledgement of there's that one like 20 second shot of a black woman throwing the ball and that's it Mm -hmm. and watching it this time around I was so aware of that I was so aware of the lack of women of color who were brilliant at baseball in this movie
0: well interestingly enough I did some research on this that 20 second or 10 second scene really it was supposedly meant to represent a real woman Oh Named Mamie Johnson Who was one of three women Who ended up joining What was then called The Negro League mm-hmm. Well in interviews with her She has said that like That she went to try out For the AG The what girls is it baseball league the,
1: the girls yeah But for instance That could have been a scene That could have been a scene In a league of Right exactly you could have seen that woman Mamie Johnson
0: that she Trying went, out She went to tryouts And
1: she was turned away She wasn't able to try
0: out For the team That
1: would have been Such an incredible scene in the middle of this already amazing movie. Right. I think the lack of acknowledging this exclusion is very ironic considering the whole film, fundamentally at its core, is about the struggle for inclusion. And like, I don't and that goes back to our main theme of this whole episode, which is to be a part of something, as amazing as that is, inherently means people are not going to be a part of it. And that is the nature of tribalism.
0: So now that we we have pointed out flaws in the movie. Let's, let's come back to why we love it. Why do you love it, Sam? Frankly, I just love watching these girls play baseball. I think when this movie is at its best, it's when we have these Quick montage shots of them sliding into base in their skirts. They're ridiculous skirts. And completely ignoring the fact that they're wearing skirts. Yeah. You know, they are in
1: those skirts covered in cuts and bruises (laughs) and dirt and sweating. There's one, there's one sequence when they're trying out and the women are like twisting and their bodies and twirling and catching the balls and throwing them. And it feels so high stakes. It feels like this is life and death. They are trying so hard to impress these people to get into this league. And it's one of my favorite scenes of the movie, because again, I think this movie does a really great job at turning a construct in in women's lives into something visual that we can Mm -hmm. point at and say this is an example of what it's like to be a woman. That whole sequence of them fighting really hard to show how good they are at baseball. I feel like that sort of sums up the female experience. Sure. In this really great visual way. And um I yeah, I just want to acknowledge that like all of these women are so <laughs> they're so beautiful and they have they're demanded to take these ridiculous posh classes and they do that sort of PSA about pouring coffee and knitting you know like while they're playing baseball they have to maintain this illusion of femininity when at the core none of them really care about that they just want to play baseball right and i think that's also a really great example of of what it is to be a woman you have to maintain this this effort to be to be a woman to look like a woman and to be dign you know like beautiful like a woman when really all you want to do is get in the dirt and play
0: yeah That's really interesting.
1: I gotta say, I gotta give a specific shout out to Rosie O'Donnell in this movie, because I have related to her so much as a child. Like, I feel like your and my relationship is you are Madonna and I am Rosie O'Donnell.
0: I love that you said that because I was going to (laughs) say...
1: And I'm so into that. Rosie is so loud in this movie. She is so obnoxious. She's so unapologetic and fierce. And then she has that one scene of vulnerability on the bus where she's talking about boys. Yeah. And how it's so hard for her to get boys to like her because she's so unavoidably herself. I was also like in a, in such a phase as a child of Rosie O'Donnell because of Harriet the Spy and because of this. Like I just think Rosie is the queen.
0: I was going to say... Rosie and Madonna are honestly the saving grace for me in this movie. Really? Yeah. I think without them, I would be bored by this movie. Oh. And as soon as they appear on screen, I'm in. I am team Doris and May. I love them so much. They are the sassy New Yorkers. (laughs) They have their thick accents. Yeah. May is super sexual. And yeah. Doris is very protective of her. Yeah. There's one scene when they explain how they met. Yeah. <laughs> that Doris was a, was a bouncer at her dad's club. And yeah. May
1: was a dancer. She there. was like, yeah. And
0: I just love that they're like they're just best friends.
1: I think what's so effective about period pieces, and you and I obviously are, we love period pieces. We love working on them and we love absorbing them. What's so great about those two characters in a period piece is that if they were around today, they would be broad city. Like they would be super proud of who they are. They'd be really loud and they would live exactly the lifestyle they want. Whereas in A League of Their Own, they have to have either jobs that are pretty degrading or indignified Or they have this one thing that they can escape into, which is baseball. I just, I think of all the women ever who have ever lived, who if they were around today or around even in the future from today, would have lived just such tremendously different lives. Right.
0: A lot of conversation in this movie is about waiting for their husbands or their boyfriends who are away at war. Mm -hmm. A lot of the focus is on this space was created for us. Because of the absence of men. yeah. And I wonder if that conversation also could have expanded into the sexuality of the women. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if there could have been something more between Doris and May.
1: I think you get the impression from the film that the filmmakers are saying, well, one step at a time, like we're already doing this pretty radical right. premise of showing these women being fierce in baseball. Let's not, let's not go too far. I would have loved to know who was in this baseball league, not just because they were amazing at baseball, but probably because they had nowhere else to go. Yeah, maybe in terms of sexuality, maybe in terms of how they didn't want to live a feminine lifestyle. Right. I want to also go back to Dottie and Kit and talk about their relationship because although this film takes on so much, at the core, our two lead characters are these two sisters. And so you sort of can boil it down, all of the themes into their experience of this. Dottie is kind of this, the illusion, quote unquote, of having it all. You know, everyone worships her in this movie because she has it all. She's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. She's the best player in the league She's married, she's dignified She doesn't need anyone to like her Which makes everyone like her And she's effortlessly capable Yeah, she's a leader without even wanting to be Mm -hmm. Like I love that line Before their first game where they're all bickering About the lineup because Jimmy's drunk And she just sort of waves her hat and she goes Hey, how hard can it be to make a lineup? And then just does it When everyone else was like struggling to make this happen She just waltzes in and does it you and I were talking earlier about how fascinating and compelling it is that she is committed to not loving baseball, like having mm. that pers- that illusion that this doesn't mean anything to her because she's married and she's satisfied with all these other corners of her life. That she doesn't need to be passionate about this thing that she is brilliant at. And that's really heartbreaking. It
0: was the thing that while I was watching the movie bothered me the most. Mm. And then after I finished the movie, I think meant the most to me. Yeah. That she was so apathetic about her potential.
1: Or at least she wanted to be perceived as apathetic.
0: That has a lot to do with the time.
1: But I don't think that's gone anywhere. I think even now you talk to girls our age who are very ambitious and very unapologetic about their passions. And then at the end of the day, what do most of them want more than anything is a boyfriend or a husband or a family. And it doesn't need to be right now in our 20s. But that ideal that construct hasn't gone anywhere and I think that's why this film is so powerful even now Dottie was so so yeah she was so unapologetic about saying this is what I want and then this other thing just happens to be here so I'll do it in the meantime whereas other women that other thing was their passion was the thing they were going after in life Kit seemed very uninterested in anything but baseball.
0: Yeah. And in the end, they have the same fate. They yeah. show up in the final scene and Kit has an enormous family. I know, I love that. I wanna to return to what you said about what girls want, what most girls want. Do, because I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with With, like, wanting a, you know, a sexual partner or companionship.
1: No, but I don't know if it was a sexual partner or a companion that Dottie was so satisfied with. I think it was the image. It was. It it, was that she is, she's doing, quote unquote, being a woman well. Yeah. She is going to have a family. She's going to have a home. She's going to, like, run a household as a wife and mother. That It was that adherence to society's demands of her that I think she was satisfied by. But but to, to agree with you To go back to your point I think the film was pretty brilliant And when you meet her husband Bob He's just the nicest Most wonderful fella in the world Yeah And it's not all about the image It's that she's met the love of her life She's met yeah. the best person she's ever going to meet And that's more important to her Than baseball And like proper casting With yeah. Bill Pullman just being Adorable. so dreamy <laughs>
0: Like, there's no there's no reason for her to become disenchanted with that idea, with right. that dream. It's
1: not like she's only after the image of it, because if they had made him a doofus, you would think that she was only interested in the image. But she's not. She's interested in being with this pretty amazing fella.
0: Why then include these little moments of sexual tension between
1: her and Jimmy? Because why not? <laughs> <laughs> because he's Tom Hanks. No, no. Actually, I love their relationship. I think it's because they both learn how to respect someone who is so fundamentally different than they are. Dottie is a woman of principle, of integrity. He is kind of a mess, but they're both incredible at baseball. And he sees her as just a woman at first. And I think they both develop this fabulous arc through learning how to respect each other. So right. I I don't know if their sexual tension is coming from a place of actually wanting to be together. I think it's just the way that men and women have been taught to be friends.
0: When I looked up this movie like online to mm-hmm. if you look up a movie poster for this movie,
1: <laughs> I know what you're going to say. It
0: lists the stars in order. Tom Hanks, Gina
1: Davis, and Madonna. <laughs> I know, that was the cover of the VHS I had yeah. as a kid. It was Madonna and I was like Madonna's not that because I didn't really know who Madonna was and a kid and I didn't really understand why she was on the cover. And then I grew up and learned she was tremendously famous, right? Oh, and
0: Tom Hanks getting top billing,
1: right? And I actually noticed I was paying attention to that when we were watching it that he doesn't come in for about twenty five minutes. Yeah, like there's there's a chunk of the movie that he's not in. I
0: maybe like resented a little that to me Jimmy seemed to have the deepest character arc hmm. of any of the characters.
1: I don't know if I agree, but I want to hear more about that. Just
0: in that he's introduced to us as this helpless, drunk, really just like bottom of the barrel human Mm -hmm. being. And he really transforms into a feminist at the end of the movie.
1: I don't know if I would go that far as to say he's a
0: feminist. He has the option to
1: return to men's baseball Mm -hmm. and he chooses to stay in women's baseball. I don't think it's that he suddenly becomes a quote unquote feminist. I don't even think that word existed then. But he learns how to respect other people that he never thought about respecting before. And I think that's a gateway into him respecting himself in a way that he's never respected himself before. I also just want to add in his last line of the film is a really gross sexual harassment moment with Miss Cuthbert, which he, right. he sort of mocks her the entire movie. I don't think he suddenly is like a good person. I think he starts as a sexist doofus and I think he ends as a sexist doofus, but on the way he, he learns how to respect people that he had never thought of as people before. Mm-hmm. And um I think that's a really really important arc. But I don't know if it's if it's the most profound arc in the movie. I think the two the two lead girls are really the the heart of the movie. Do you
0: think that it's important for us to see male characters like
1: Jimmy in oh, yeah. movies about
0: women. Absolutely.
1: I want to see men take more ownership over feminist causes to say like this is this is my problem too. He wants to help these women not because he's doing any sort of martyr thing. I-, I think he's doing it because he sees them as ball players now. Right. Like one of the first scenes he has in the movie, he says, I haven't got ball players. I've got girls. Girls are who you sleep with after the game. Right. Not who you coach during the game. And I think his arc is just to simply realizing how wrong that is. Hmm. Um, and that they are ball players, And he has a great job that he's secure in. And that no one else is probably going to take from him. <laughs> you know, if he goes back to AAA, he has to go back to all the insecurities of male toxic sports culture and here he has newly respectful relationships with these new ballplayers and I think he's smart enough to realize that he's got a pretty good job now
0: he learns how to be a better man by respecting women yeah I have a lot of admiration for Emma Watson's he for she campaign I think that's what Jimmy's character does in this movie
1: absolutely But in terms of how this baseball league is a platform for the individual characters to grow, I am so taken by Kit's transformation from this really sort of angsty, self-pitying girl who blames everything on her sister and doesn't take any sort of responsibility for her own, you know, what, what she's unhappy about and by the end of the film she's waving at the crowd and it's not because she beat her sister but it's because she comes to own how good she is at what she does she was always a good baseball player she was a good right. baseball player from from the first scene even though you see her fail like the point is she was a pitcher and she had this strength that she allowed herself not to be proud of because she was so insecure with her sister yeah and by the end of it she says fuck it i'm me and I, I can't spend the rest of my life afraid of my sister. Actually, one of my favorite moments in the movie is when they're, it's after the game, and they're outside, and Kit is signing autographs with little girls. And Dottie looks like a million bucks. She's all dressed up. She's about to leave with her husband. Kid hasn't showered yet. She's still covered in dirt and sweat from the game. And she's signing autographs. And she's being so nice to the little girls. She's saying, like, you want to be a baseball player too, right? When you get big, And I had this moment that I never had when I was a kid that Kit is actually a better role model for those girls than Dottie is because she represents 100% passion and conviction and determination. And Dottie was more ambivalent about how she felt about this passion. I was just so proud for those girls to be talking to Kit in that moment instead of Dottie. And I don't think I would have had that feeling about those two characters at the beginning of the film. I think Dottie would have been the one that I would have told young girls to go look at.
0: I love that. I mean, we talk about flawed characters all the time. I think Kit is such a good example of a character that is written with respect Mm -hmm. for both her dreams and her insecurities. And I think she's played beautifully by
1: Lori Petty. Yeah. What do you think is... Dottie's arc. I don't think it ends in the 1940s plotline. I think her arc extends all the way into the epilogue in the 90s, where she goes to the Hall of Fame reunion. The whole time, for the last what is it, 40 years, from being a part of the league to leaving the league, raising children, being with Dreamy Bill Pullman, she has been committed to this idea that baseball wasn't important to her, and that being the best player in the league wasn't as important as all these other values she had and when she goes to the reunion and she thinks of all these memories these profound experiences that happened to her being on the cover of of Life magazine and and being this rock star athlete and seeing all these old women still playing she goes onto the field and all of her old teammates are playing a game of baseball I think she finally humbles herself and she realizes that I was a part of something extraordinary and I'm going to I'm going to give myself credit for that.
0: I think one of the most important things this movie does is simply remind you that women can play baseball. <laughs> because I immediately went to Google after finishing the movie and I typed in women's pro baseball league, mm. and it does not exist. It ain't there.
1: I think it died in 1952. Yeah, or I think 54. Yeah, or- I, I will say, though, I think this film just has a lot of celebration in it and I think that goes back to our theme in this podcast that we just want to celebrate women and they're not celebrating enough women they're not celebrating enough kinds of women but you know going back to what we had said earlier about 90s white feminism it's a step it's not enough of a step but it's a step
0: great I think that's a perfect entree into our next conversation which is on a movie that I really think is wonderful great bring it on (laughs) Bring it on. I think there is so much in this movie. Amazing. It is a rich
1: movie. So Bring It On explores the world of competitive high school cheerleading. We start with the Rancho Carne Toros, led by new captain Torrance Shipman. And she wants to lead her team to victory, as they've always done. And she quickly realizes that all of the cheerleading routines that her affluent white high school cheerleading team have have always used have been stolen and appropriated from a Black cheerleading team from East Compton, California. So now we're following two teams. We're following the Toros and we're following the Clovers. And the Clovers, led by their captain Isis, they are eager to win at nationals this year and finally get the title that they have always deserved. Meanwhile, the Toros are sort of scrambling to figure out how to maintain the reigning championship that they have always had with the fact that they have never actually had original material before. And so they get through regionals, through a series of humiliations. They finally come up with a new routine. You finally get to nationals. And the Clovers win. They win first place and the Toros get second place.
0: Bring It On came out in the year 2000. It was directed by Peyton Reed and written by Jessica Bendinger. It stars Kirsten Dunst as Torrance, Gabrielle Union as Isis, and Eliza Dushku as Missy. Sam, why do you love this movie? I think that this movie achieves so much (laughs) in what is perceivably a very small package. Mm -hmm. I think it's known as just a silly teen comedy about competitive cheerleading. But what this movie is actually about is cultural appropriation and privilege. So like there is so much in this movie that is valuable for a teenage audience
1: Totally. There's so many hilariously tone-deaf moments that I think are important for young people to see and not want to enact in their own behavior. Tone-deaf from the characters? From the Toros, yeah. Yeah. From Kirsten Dunst and her team.
0: I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliantly written. I think the dialogue is super clever. (laughs) It's funny. It's entertaining. I think the performances are amazing. I'm just, I'm all in on this movie. (laughs)
1: I think because I have always had this image of it being this very frivolous teen comedy. I think the content is so interesting that it sort of passes over, that sort of usurps that. Mm -hmm. I think it's also a reflection of cheerleading itself.
0: The idea of a team of young women who dance and cheer for a male sports team is inherently unfeminist. However, one of the clever things that the movie does is sort of make fun of the football aspect of it. That like, games are practices for us. The real competition is the athletic competition against other cheerleading teams.
1: I don't think I had thought about before that League of Their Own and Bend It Like Beckham are about how women exist in men's spaces, Mm and men's sports. But Bring It On is about a woman's sport. Yeah. And I find that really interesting. I'd never thought of that before, that it is women rocking it. That's who defines and determines cheerleading.
0: Do you know what else I heard recently? This is completely off topic, but that competitive cheerleading is technically the most dangerous sport, (laughs) like where you are at most risk of critical injury. I thought that was fascinating. Anyway. Another thing this movie does so brilliantly is it shows two young women, Torrance and Isis, mm-hmm. growing into their leadership roles, yeah. learning how to be leaders as women. Absolutely. And I like I have chills talking about it <laughs> because there are so few movies that do that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think you've curated the order of watching these movies in an interesting way. That we started with A League of Their Own, which is sort of oblivious to its exclusion of women of color. This film is is conscious of it, but still does it. Like, you know, the, right. the Clovers, except for one scene that involves the talk show host who, who helps them get to nationals. Besides that one scene, there's no scene in the film that... That the Clovers are featured that doesn't ultimately progress the plot line of the Toros. They have no scenes unto their own arc that doesn't in some way have something to do in dialogue with Kirsten Dunst and her team. I just wanted more from Isis. I wanted more from the Clovers. I wanted to know about their late night practices or about how they were working so hard to fight against the disadvantages that the Toros had put them in. I sort of just wanted more from them because it still very much feels like a movie about the Toros that the Clovers sort of contribute to.
0: Something that I think this movie does interestingly, and I think this was intentional, that it is a movie whose narrative follows the villain. Just in terms of how sports movies are structured, Mm -hmm. usually there's the good team and then there's the evil team that are almost always in a position of privilege, Mm -hmm. in a position of existing power that they have won for a long time and the underdog team has to Mm -hmm. defeat. And they usually have, like I'm going to bring up the karate kid, for example. Mm -hmm. You have... The villain team in that, which is Cobra Kai, Mm -hmm. they have this villainous name. The Toros have that. They have this sort of aggressive title as their team name as compared to the Clovers. Yeah. And I think by doing that, they are very intentionally saying that this is a movie about white privilege. It suffers definitely by not having enough scenes directly about the Clovers. Yeah but i do think that it tells this story in a very interesting and
1: innovative way i agree i might argue don't don't you think that perhaps Instead of this film being conscious of the villainy of the lead characters, it's actually kind of just empathizing with the obliviousness of white privilege and the obliviousness of people appropriating and Mm -hmm. sort of giving them a humanity that maybe they don't deserve.
0: But maybe it's important for young white women who watch a movie like this to see characters that they empathize with who are also engaging
1: in destructive behavior. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. To learn from. I'd never looked at it that way before. Now, I mean, now I think I like bring it on a hell of a lot more than <laughs> I did before this conversation. Now it all seems like really strategic and really witty. I th- but I do think it could have done all of that while giving right. more screen time and and space for empathy. For Isis and her team. Mm-hmm. I think what's also so fascinating about Torrance's character is that she has all these moments of being called on her privilege and called on her sort of inadvertent bigotry. And then she changes her behavior, but not necessarily because she understands the principle of why it's wrong, but more just because she's gotten caught. You know, like she <laughs> has to change her routine, not because she know. I mean, she does know fundamentally that it's wrong. She says that. But it's mainly because they need a new routine. For, for the next competition, she gives Isis the check from her dad because she thinks that's, like, the nice charitable thing to do when it's so tone deaf. And then when Isis rips it up, she says, why do you have to be so mean? Yes. She totally doesn't clock why this is so offensive. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that that's, that's a lot of how I think white women who are called on their privilege might react. That they're seeing it as getting caught rather than really internalizing what is what is hurtful about their behavior
0: yeah what is the real problem here yeah. And I mean the, the Clovers win in the end because they're the better team. They're more original. It's sort of it's sort of the inevitable ending of the movie. Yeah. You talk about how stories end all the time. Like, is it surprising but is it inevitable? Yeah, surprising but inevitable is always how things should end. It's inevitable that the Clovers win. Yeah. They're the better team.
1: They're the better team, and I love also this little nugget of privilege. That the Toros have that even after they botch their regionals performance with Sparky's choreography, the the official comes up and he says, because you're the reigning champs, you automatically get to go to nationals next year. Like, they massively fuck up and they still get to move forward because of the privilege they've had from stealing from the Clovers in in, in past years. I just, like, think that that's really important to acknowledge, too. They still get away with fucking up because of their privilege.
0: I think that's something that's inherent to sports culture, Mm. that the winners keep winning Mm. because you gain privileges by winning. Yeah. If you win by cheating, you still... You still win. You still win. You're still the winner.
1: Right. Yeah. I also had this really great moment at the end of the movie that the clovers get a check they get this like really massive check right and i remember thinking that's gonna help them win again next year yeah you know like now they have the resources the means to get better for the competition next year and it's just such an uneven race and i remember thinking particularly at the end of the movie the thing i'm most happy about is that check is that now Yeah, They get a little bit more of an even playing field with the Toros, who their means and resources are so casually mentioned. The fact that one of the characters, her dad, just like casually drops $500 and that they live in a community that is affluent enough that they can have a car wash and raise $1,500 in one day.
0: They have a car wash in the parking lot of like
1: a yacht club. (laughs) I think I missed that. That's funny. There are sailboats in the background. Yeah. That's really funny. But I just want to ask you, you, because you love this movie so much, do you think that all of that is intentional? Or do you think that we are now pointing out the, like, hypocritical flaws of this movie? Or do you think this film is aware of its hypocrisy? Or the hypocrisy that it's exploring?
0: I think it's so intentional. Oh, great. It's almost on the nose at times. I think that Torrance is inherently a good person mm-hmm. and sort of redeems the Toros, but most of the Toros we meet They're are fools. reprehensible. Yeah. Courtney and Whitney are my worst nightmare. <laughs> Big Red is horrible. Yeah. Aaron is horrible. It's true. The movie opens with a nightmare. <laughs> And they're they're all in red and big red, walking through the crowd and like yeah. pushing people and I'm still big red. <laughs> it's sort of a terrifying scene. Yeah. I think we are set up from the beginning
1: to be at least a little suspicious of this team. Yeah. And that they are the clowns. That we're sort of we're sort of mocking not mocking, but we are we are given permission to laugh at these clowns, you think? Yeah. I recently saw Mean Girls on Broadway. <gasps> And I thought it was great I just had a fabulous time And I was eating it up I was loving how mean they were And I was thinking about why Because I don't like mean people in real life And I, I hope to think I'm not mean And I realized it's because We deserve as ridiculous And even possibly lowbrow comedy As male culture We deserve girls being that mean Because it's funny and it's ridiculous Like we deserve all kinds of comedy And I think I was really getting off On the Mean Girls musical In the same way I was getting off on Bring It On in that the mean characters are just so ridiculous, and I enjoy seeing women being ridiculous. They they have the funniest line. They have the cleverest lines. Let's not put the duh in dumb. Like that's a ridiculous line, no matter so whose funny. mouth it comes out.
0: And this movie, when this movie was popular in the in the two thousands, when I was watching it in middle school, mm-hmm. it was so quotable. Like you're being a cheer tater, Torrance. <laughs> Is so brilliant and funny. (laughs) And there is a kind of allowing the meanest girls to also be the cleverest. Yeah, sure. Is totally. I I think there's something interesting in there, and there was definitely a trend in movies that I think started with Clueless mm-hmm. in the '90s, and maybe maybe started with Heather's in the '80s mm-hmm. of really sharply written dialogue in movies about teenagers mm. that teenagers have their own language totally. that you know it was taken up by Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm. after Clueless. And then made its way into this movie and then also to Mean Girls later. Sure. That there is a way that teenagers talk that it only lasts a few years. Yeah. But it's it's when you've discovered the power of language, yeah. but you haven't developed the filter yet. <laughs> To to like garden that language Yeah you're so right That's
1: exactly what it is
0: There's something about teen comedies in particular That Mm. captures that
1: so well That like boys will beat each other up But girls get the interesting dialogue That you're describing Like in Mean Girls and Clueless And Bring It On They get really clever witty dialogue And I as an audience member would just prefer to see that than to see boys breaking shit or beating each other up.
0: I think that's such a reflection of the way that teenagers access their power Mm -hmm. at that age, Mm -hmm. because there is an inherent patriarchy Mm -hmm. that boys and girls sort of grow into, that boys explore power in a physical way, Mm -hmm. that girls aren't trained to access, to have access to. Or just maybe naturally don't. Who's to say? These three movies would say that girls do have the ability to be physically empowered and physically aggressive.
1: Sure. In League of Their Own and in Bring It On, there are physical altercations between girls. Girls actually fight physically. Oh, and Beckham, they do too. They do too. There's a physical fight scene between women in each of these movies. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I've never been in a physical fight with a girl in my life. Me neither. I think that'd be awesome if it ever happened, but I don't think it it will.
0: (laughs) I can't finish this conversation without... Just discussing how much I love Eliza Dushku. Oh, yes. How much I love Claire Kramer as Courtney. Both of those two women were in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is my favorite show ever.
1: I also want to throw in Eliza Dushku is the lead in my favorite Joss Whedon show, which is Dollhouse, which is so underrated and everyone should go watch. Great. That's all.
0: And Gabrielle Union, who is
1: a vampire.
0: (laughs) What? She looks exactly the same. Oh, that's true. Have you seen her today? I was confused because we were just talking about Buffy the Vampire oh, I'm Slayer. Sorry. I was saying she, vampire
1: is a compliment. Gabrielle
0: Union is not in Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
1: But she is a vampire because she hasn't aged since 1995.
0: And that is completely true. <laughs> Gabrielle Union is so pitch perfect in this movie. Yeah, she
1: is. Just so strong.
0: She shares a lot of qualities, I think, with Dottie in a league of their own. Oh in this sort of natural poise and leadership
1: ability and power. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the one distinction that's really important is that they are both coming from very different places of circumstance and privilege. Absolutely. I think I think that kind of quiet intensity and power, yeah, is how you is how you become a leader. And I think they are the same character in that they are such leaders. But I think Isis is arguably a more interesting character because her circumstances are so much more a part of her character dynamic and Dottie's kind of, Maybe
0: Sure. I agree. And I think her character is in perfect juxtaposition to Torrance, who really struggles to be a leader. She wants to be a leader, but it doesn't come naturally to her. Mm -hmm. She panics a few times in the movie. We see
1: her like, yeah, I'm cursed. Right. You're not fucking cursed. You're just not a good leader right now. Get it she's together. learning.
0: She's learning. Yeah,
1: but isn't it interesting that when she's failing as a leader she blames it on the spirit stick that she's cursed rather than just I need to step up right now.
0: Sure, sure.
1: Like she puts it on something else. She externalizes the problem.
0: I do want to I want to finish this conversation around the culmination of the movie mm-hmm. in which the Clovers win mm-hmm. and the Toros have this sort of split second of being disappointed, Mm -hmm. but then they sort of have, they have this moment of celebrating getting second place. Do you think that moment is earned?
1: Hmm. I don't know. What do you, what do you think?
0: I just want to, I I want to posit the question to you of, does the movie get away with the white characters, the arguably villainous characters Mm -hmm. learning from their experience, learning from the triumphs of the black characters And having having their arc be
1: a reflection of that. That's a really loaded question. That opens up so many doors of conversation. I think the first thing that comes to my mind, at least, is that they sort of separately from the Clovers, sort of irrelevant from the arc of the Clovers, they learn what work ethic really is they are humbled in such a profound way that they had never really worked hard until this year when they have to come up with completely new routines mm-hmm. everything had been handed to them and now through this you know racist circumstance that they had inherited from Big Red that you know in a passive way they had participated in as well through that circumstance they now have to rise to the occasion and have original material mm-hmm. and it got them second place Because it wasn't as good as the other team. And I think they come to value that when they do things completely on their own, they're going to be rewarded, but they may not be rewarded as as much as somebody else. And I think there is something really valuable in that. And I, I, yeah, I do think that's sort of separate from, from the Clover's arc. I don't know if they take advantage, if, if the Clover's arc is being taken advantage of here. Mm. I think what the Clovers learn, unfortunately, is what they knew all along, which is that they're the best. (laughs) You know, and they get validated in this really amazing way. And that's really satisfying to watch.
0: Yeah. And what really ends up being at the core, the understanding between these two women, when Torrance and Isis have come together Mm -hmm. and they have this sort of banter back and forth, like giving each other tips so that they can each bring their best to the table. It's really about a love of what they do. Yeah. And a love of being leaders. And a love of competing. Yeah. Because... What's the fun of competing if
1: there's no challenge? Yeah. I, maybe that's why I do think it's earned when they're excited about being in second place because they know that they earned it. Yeah. And there is something so satisfying and empowering about getting exactly what you earn, whether it's second place, first place, 10th place, knowing that that was on your terms. You got what you worked for. That's that's really empowering.
0: I love that. Yeah. I have chills. <laughs>
1: You have, just side note, you have completely changed my perspective on this movie. I gotta say, yeah. I was not anticipating you being like, this film is actually brilliant because these reasons. I was like, oh, great.
0: <laughs> I think it's genius. I know. I think all of my respect to Jessica Bendinger. Totally. Just, I think, the world of your movie. Let's move on. Let's move on. So now we round out our discussion with Bendit Like Beckham. Yes! This movie came out in 2002. It was written and directed by Gurinder Chadha and also co-written by Guljit Bindra and Paul Maeda Burgess. It stars Parminder Nagra as
1: Jess and Keira Knightley as Jules. Bend it Like Beckham follows a young British teenager named Jess. Who is super obsessed with soccer um, our American soccer they refer to it as football in the movie because it's an English film she is a fantastic soccer player and she has to figure out how to manage her love of soccer and how good she is with her Indian culture and the fact that her mother is dead set on her not playing soccer and settling down and marrying and this comes to clashing when Jess joins a local team and the film sort of culminates in this one day It's the big soccer game for their team And it also happens to be the same day As her older sister's wedding And Jess has to figure out which one to prioritize And she finds a way to sort of prioritize both But ultimately she chooses soccer She says to her parents This is what I want And this is what I'm going to do And I I need you to be okay with me doing this And they, they give their blessing
0: I love this movie I love this movie so much It is simply a joy to
1: watch Yeah
0: Talk about celebration. This movie is a celebration of love, of a sport, of soccer. And it is also a celebration of of family and tradition. And the characters are so lovely to each other.
1: Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of sort of stigma about theater that feels kind or wholesome or um, for the whole family or feel good. And I really sort of hate that stereotype because some of the most important work that I've been exposed to as an audience member have been work that is fundamentally kind and shows the kindness of humanity and is sort of profound in its kindness. This is a kind film. Yeah. That doesn't mean that there's not conflict. Doesn't mean there's not struggle. And, like, asking really big questions, really important questions about tradition. But the film is fundamentally kind to the people it depicts. And the characters are more or less fundamentally kind to each other. And I think there's real value in that.
0: With with a few exceptions. Yeah, But at the end of the day, this is a movie about the goodness of people.
1: Yeah. I remember watching this as a kid and being really, yeah, being really inspired by it. Like, I know that's one of our words that we're like, we're not interested in films being inspiring, which is true. But this film really was a huge inspiration to me. I loved how much they loved soccer. They loved soccer so much, which made me love them and kind of make me love soccer. Yeah. And I loved how much Jess loved her family. Yeah. That was so important to me. That she would bend over backwards to make both of these things happen. That she could be a part of her family without causing a fuss and she could still do this thing that she loved.
0: The title of the movie is Bend It Like Beckham. That Mm -hmm. refers to David Beckham. She has posters of him in her bedroom that she talks to. Mm -hmm. She idolizes him. He's her hero. She fantasizes about playing with him. Right. One of the most interesting arcs to me in this movie is Jess realizing that she doesn't need her hero anymore. Mm -hmm. The final scene of the movie in the airport is when they do see David Beckham, Mm -hmm. and she's sort of not excited about it anymore. Yeah.
1: She's too busy being like, okay, I'm about to get on a plane to go to California to play soccer myself. You could
0: say that she's too busy, like, making out with her cute boyfriend. But I think what that moment really is, is she's become the hero that she's always dreamt of being. Yeah, I love that. Do you think there's any significance in her hero being not only a man, but a white man?
1: Yeah, I think they're making a really interesting point about role models and heroes that, you know, when you love something that's very specific, you have to admire the people who are available to you. And if there are no people who you can admire who look like you, you're going to admire the best person who's there. And I just think that's really fascinating and bittersweet that She worships this bald guy, as her father puts it. You know, her father, I think, is such an interesting character that he had this really traumatizing experience with the English cricket team, and they didn't let him join. And that has now fed down into this struggle letting Jess play, that she wants to join an ostensibly all white team with an ostensibly Western game. And he's uncomfortable by it because he has been trained from his own experiences that this is not going to go well for her and she's not going to be accepted.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's a really interesting dynamic that it's not even the team itself, not accepting Jess. It's years and years of inherited trauma of, of her,
0: experiencing her, racism. of
1: exp- Yeah. Of, of, of whiteness being responsible for hurting other people that has led to Jess being held back from playing the game by her parents. I think that's really important that we're acknowledging that it is still whiteness at the core. That's the problem, but it isn't actually the white characters in the movie. They're pretty accepting of Jess. It's the fact that we are all products of our history.
0: Jess's story is really, is really representative. I think of a lot of first generation kids of immigrants Mm -hmm. that Your parents really identify with the culture that they've brought from the place that they've come from. But as a kid who's grown up outside London, her identity as, as a British person is so different from her parents' identity. So there's that disconnect that is just inherent in that relationship. I think it is very kind that he is able to have this journey, and and the movie ends with him accepting her, yeah, and accepting her passions rather than rather than the other direction that the movie could take, where she just succeeds in her rebellion. Mm.
1: Yeah, but that her father is a part of this new decision. Yeah, exactly. It's really great, and I think it's really endearing, and like maybe a little on the nose, but I I, I love that the big sort of climactic moment of this movie ends with Pinky's wedding and Jess playing the big soccer game at the same time. And I remember watching this movie thinking really the same day, like they're right on the same day. But um, no, I think it it captures something in a really dramatic, succinct way that Jess is really dealing with on this much larger sort of existential scale that these things are happening at the same time and they do clash. They are in direct contradiction with each other. So why not have them on the same day? Because that is a, that is the metaphor For what Jess is trying to figure out of how to do these things simultaneously without pissing anybody off.
0: I love Pinky's character... Because she she represents this parallel journey mm. to Jess's journey. Sure. In that she is fulfilling this role that is that has been assigned to her by her family. Mm-hmm. And yet Gorinder includes these scenes of her yeah. meeting up with her fiance in secret yeah. to show that like This is actually really what she wants. Yeah. And that she is fighting for what she wants, which is a marriage to this person that she loves. Yeah. And that that is not a lesser journey than Jess's. And so these parallel shots in the final scenes of Jess celebrating her soccer victory and Pinky celebrating her wedding. Yeah. Are so important because they are in dialogue with each other. Because both of these women have achieved their objective. Yeah. And are proud of themselves. Yeah. And I think that's so special. I think that's really well written.
1: I do too. And I think it does a great job at not making any judgments either for or against the way that you respond to your family's culture. Right. Jess has her journey and Pinky has hers and neither of them is ultimately more correct than the other. You know, the film doesn't make any didactic statements about Mm -hmm. how you should relate or reject your family. And I really love that the film doesn't, isolate what it is to feel distant from your parents it doesn't isolate it to just jess's family but you have see this parallel with jules's family that her mother really doesn't understand her and in some ways jess is actually closer with her family than jules is with hers mm-hmm. and <laughs> you and i have have joked about the fact that these films have like, really really lovely dads That there's this trend in movies that that whenever there's family tension, and this this goes back to Lady Bird too from, from last week, whenever there's tension being examined in like a nuclear American family, not always, but a lot of the times with daughters, they're all daddy's girls. And they all have really great gentle relationships with their fathers. And usually fathers have problems with their sons, but not with their daughters. Yeah. And daughters usually have problems with their mothers. And we just sort of never see any tension between fathers and daughters. I loved both of these fathers. I thought they were adorable. But, you yeah. know, they were a little clean.
0: It's a trend that I'm interested in following as we as we explore the movies on this podcast, if we ever come across a movie that features a tense relationship between a father and a daughter.
1: I do think these really tense relationships with both of these mothers are fascinating. Yeah. And they're, they're fascinating kind of in the same way that both of these mothers are committed to their daughters, understanding the traditional gender norms of their respective cultures. And both of these young girls rejecting them because they have to, because they don't know how to be, The young women that their mothers want them to be. Right. And that does feel incredibly real. Yes. I know so many mothers who put pressure on their daughters to be like that. And so I was really satisfied by seeing like Jules's mother buying her the bras and Kira Knightley just like not having any use for them.
0: Right. Can we talk about Jules' mom for a second? She's played by Juliet Stevenson. And I think... She's amazing. She has sort of the thankless job in this movie of playing really this horrible character mm. that I think is important to see in movies about women. To see women who perpetuate the patriarchy. Mm. She's sort of the Aunt Lydia of this movie. Oh
1: my god. In a, That's right? just a really severe analogy, but yes, you are correct.
0: <laughs> Aunt Lydia is such an important character and takes such courage for an actor to play yeah. because Because she represents
1: like the worst
0: of us.
1: (laughs) For those who who don't get the reference, Aunt Lydia is one of the villains in The Handmaid's Tale. And she is sort of the guardian of the handmaids. And she's the one who keeps them in line. She's like the custodian to sex slavery. Mm -hmm. But she does it with a huge amount of self-respect.
0: And obviously Jules' mom does not exemplify. No, but it's a really
1: funny comparison. There
0: there is something in in the way that she talks to her daughter and in what she cares about. She's simply stuck in a different mindset Mm -hmm. of the way women used to be
1: trained to prioritize their lives. Yeah. And then you get this nutball daughter. Who is wearing sports bras and wants to play soccer. And she's left completely clueless and helpless mm-hmm. about how to relate to her daughter. And I think that's really quite sad. Yeah. She misses out on really great moments that she could have had with her daughter. That the dad has. The dad has a really great bond with the daughter because they play yeah, soccer together. Yeah, not great dad. Yeah. Because he accepts Jules exactly as she is. And yeah, he's probably a little biased. He loves that she participates in maybe more masculine activities that he can relate to. But I think it's a shame when moms want their daughters to be something specific so badly that they lose sight of what's great about their daughters already.
0: Beyond the major tension of the film, which is the push and pull between these two parts of Jess's life, is her relationship with her friend Jules. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it's a huge part of the movie. And yet it's complicated by
1: having this weird love triangle. It never felt completely organic to me because the movie is set up that Jules is the entryway for Jess to really embrace this new part of her life. And then it very quickly diverts to Joe being that for Jess. He's the one who goes to their house and pleads with her parents He's the one who really pushes her to stay with the team. And all of the action that Jules had in the first few scenes gets steered away from her and moves on to Joe's character. And I just wonder what the movie would have been like if Joe was like a minor character and then the major tension of Jess wanting to play soccer was encouraged by Jules. I believe I read this somewhere, but it could be a complete like conspiracy fan theory. But I thought I heard at one point that an original draft of this script did involve an overt attraction between Jess and Jules. And that is what their relationship was about that just got onto this team was infatuated with soccer and then once she was there realized even more about her identity than she had sort of bargained for and obviously that's not what this film says yeah. and i don't even know if that's true but that sounds really interesting to me
0: yeah especially i don't think it would be so much of an issue if not we had this gay panic from the
1: parents which felt a little out of left field.
0: Well, they sort of get away with it
1: because the characters aren't gay in the end. Right. If they had been gay and the mother had that hysterical moment at Pinky's wedding, right? what would the movie have been then? That's a very different That's movie. That's a very different movie. Right. They laugh it off even though I'm like uncomfortable while she's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> to follow up on what I had said earlier about the movie being kind, I love how much cinematic detail they give to when the girls are playing soccer. Yeah. You had said this earlier that these films really showcase their bodies in a really powerful athletic way. Mm -hmm. I am intimidated by soccer watching this movie. I mean, I'm intimidated by soccer all the time. I think soccer is amazing. Yeah. But this movie really shows how difficult soccer is and how hard you have to work.
0: At the end of the day, this movie is about love of a sport. Yeah. And that's what all three of the movies are. And it sort of goes without saying that that is the point. Of a sports movie about a man Mm. But I sort of love that it's There is so much more to these Movies but it's also enough To enjoy a movie about a woman Who loves sports
1: I think what is arguably more interesting about These movies than movies featuring Men who love sports is that not only Are they dealing with the way that they love their Game and they practice and they work Hard for it but they're also dealing with All of these other identity issues Right that's completely true
0: on a personal level when i think of being in gym class in high school and being the kind of the kid who who crosses their arms in the middle of a soccer game and like doesn't want to participate <laughs> <laughs> and everyone has to sort of play around because <laughs> because i'm just like taking up space <laughs> there were a number of things going on in my head the first thing was that i was really secretly impressed and jealous of the athletic girls in the room who mm. could really ho- hold their own against the boys and were able to express their feminism in an external way, that mm. their body did all of the communication necessary, that they were just as good. Yes. Amen. Or better. Yes. And yeah, I was always sort of jealous of that. But then on the other side, I remember feeling like excluded by the boys. The boys would always, you know, like pass the ball to each other. Mm -hmm. And it would usually get to a point where the teacher would say, would say, okay, in this round, you have to pass to everyone on the team or your goal doesn't count. (laughs) And so there would come a point in gym class where the ball would have to be passed to me and then I would have to pass it to someone else and eventually it would go into the goal and our team would celebrate. And there was a moment beside all of my rejection of sports and all of the athletic kids' rejection of me, <laughs> there would always be a moment of thrill yeah. that I participated in that ball going into the goal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a little, it's a small victory. I guess what I'm getting at is, I feel like on a grander scale, that thrill is what happens every moment that a truly
1: athletic person is playing their sport. Yeah, I mean, that's how we feel in rehearsal. Yeah. When we have our tribe going after our goal. Yeah. We feel like we're a part of something bigger than us.
0: It's a pride in what you do. Yeah. It's a pride in your own achievements.
1: Love it! Go team!
0: Go team! Go team! Go fempop! Let's talk about next episode. Our next episode is Unconventional Mentors. The first movie is The Miracle Worker, which came out in 1962, in which a blind and deaf-mute girl learns to communicate from her young teacher. The next movie is Uptown Girls from 2003, in which the bankrupt daughter of a rock and roll legend becomes a nanny to a wealthy, neurotic child. And the third movie is The Devil Wears Prada, which was released in 2006, in which a woman becomes the personal assistant to the editor-in-chief of a high fashion magazine. Uptown Girls is available on Hulu, And The Miracle Worker and The Devil Wears Prada are both available for $2.99 from YouTube, Voodoo, and Google Play. All of those links are on our website, feministpopcorn.com. I also want to remind everyone that we do want to hear from you. So if you have any kind of opinion on what we've said, on the movies we've watched, if you have a personal connection to the movies that you would like to share with us and with our listeners, Send in your voicemails to feministpopcorn at gmail.com. We'll be really excited to hear from you. Just remember to write your name and where you're calling from and the subject of the recording in the subject line, and we'll listen to it and we'll try to get it on the show. We love our listeners and we want to hear from you. Elizabeth, thank you for joining me this week and discussing these three amazing movies. I'm really excited for next week and for all the weeks to come. Me too. Thanks back, Sam. (laughs) Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and co hosted by Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Twitter at official underscore fempop and on Facebook and Instagram at feministpopcorn. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. Sam,
1: the movie's starting. Pass the popcorn.